Um, If we could start with our prayer for guidance, please. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with glad hearts what you say to us today. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 21. Um, it's a fairly long passage, so I don't want to lose you, so you might want to open your pew Bibles. It's on page 192. This is the reason that I, Paul, am your prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of your Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given for me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will be enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of the gospel I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me, to the Gentiles, the news of the boundless riches of Christ, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety may now be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I therefore, I pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth takes his name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in the hearts through faith, and as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Tammy, for the reading of God's word. I want to also just take a moment to thank Pastor Bob for allowing me to share today. He's on vacation in Florida, and I just trust that it'll be a time of refreshment for him. I wanted to also just uh, thank my prayer partners. I sent uh, a lot of messages out by text on Thursday evening and said, for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, would you be covering me in prayer? And I just felt like the Lord was just uh, in those prayers, and uh, I just thank him for the opportunity. You'll notice that the sermon for today is God's plan. And the scripture we heard was, of course, the whole of chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians. Our current eight-week study is building a community in Christ. And it's from the book of Ephesians. 
Uh, it's my custom uh, in the morning. I read. I try to read at least one chapter every morning in the Bible. Get up early, and uh, then I spend some time in prayer. I have a specific list of people that I pray for. But when I read in my Bible, uh, I also like to underline and highlight uh, things that I think are important for that day. And then I try to focus on a key uh, essential element for me. And I just asked the Lord, I said, remind me of this throughout the day. So as I read through that, I actually made a photocopy of the Pew Bible. I don't use this version at home. But I made a copy of the Pew Bible, and I wanted to just kind of go back and recap and highlight a few of the things that Tammy said there that I thought were important to me. Uh, In verse 1, it says, Paul is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Uh, We also had that he received a commission to share the grace of God. And when I think about commission, I think about co-mission. We are called uh, to share with Christ the love of the world the love of Christ to the world around us. Then in verse 6 and 7, it talks about being joint heirs through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit about the gospel. I put a handout in your bulletin. It's a little insert that you can use to take notes on. We'll come back to that. tells you specifically what the gospel is. Sometimes I'll ask people, what is the gospel? And they'll say, it's the good news. Well, what's the good news? It's the good news of God. It's a very specific thing, though. So we'll look at that. And then he says that he's a servant. Then in verse 9, where we basically get the sermon title for today, it says he's to bring the news of the boundless riches of Christ and make everyone see the plan of the mystery of God that he has created in everything. Then in verse 11, it says God's eternal purpose was carried out in Christ. Verse 12, it says we have access and boldness and confidence through faith in him. That's through faith in Jesus Christ. Then verse 16, it says, we are strengthened by his Holy Spirit, which is a gift to every believer. And then in verse 21, it says, lastly to him, Jesus, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So those are the things that I thought were important. And then I went back and said, okay, if there was anything in here that I would take as the essence of this passage, it would be not only his plan, but it's the fact that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are joint heirs. We're brothers and sisters. We're children of the Heavenly Father. And then it says, of the same body, sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of the gospel, I have become a servant. And you know what? We're all servants. That's the bottom line there. Okay, then as I was looking at God's plan, I know that the the purpose was to uh, talk about God's plan today, but I found that it was uh, more involved than just God's plan. If you'll remember the famous Genesis account, in the Garden of Eden. We had a loving relationship with God. He had given uh, Adam, before he gave uh, Adam Eve, he had given him the job in the Garden of Eden to subdue it, have dominion over the animal kingdom of the world. He says, I have dominion, uh, subdue the animals, be fruitful and multiply. And then he gave one command, which I think was very serious. And I'm just going to read this command to you. Uh, This is out of Genesis 2. 15 through 17, and I think it kind of says a lot about what God's talking about here. He says, um, and the Lord commanded the man. Now, this is interesting because we have 10 commandments in the book of Exodus, and then Jesus broke it down into only two commands. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So in the Garden of Eden, there was only one command. And I thought it was interesting that uh, we couldn't really keep that one very long. So it says, And the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, 
for in the day that you do, you will surely die. And I thought, well, that shouldn't be that hard to do. And then uh, when I saw Adam and Eve fall in sin, I thought of myself, if I had been in the garden, nobody knows exactly how long it took for them to take of the forbidden fruit. I thought, you know, Chad, if you'd have been there, it would have been about 30 minutes. (laughs) Anyway, so anyway, uh, so we see that there was a serious repercussion. He says, there's one tree. I don't want you to eat of that because in the day that you eat, you will surely die. In the very next chapter, we meet Satan, and he's called a serpent. It's interesting. I had an opportunity to go up to uh, Crabtree Falls uh, a couple of weekends ago with a friend, and um, this is an amazing thing. That particular morning, I had gone to the park pool. I had actually been swimming. I swam for a mile, and then I get this text from this friend, and she says, uh, I want to take you to Crabtree Falls this afternoon, and I thought, well, wait a minute. I've already gotten my exercise for the day, so We get to Crabtree Falls, and it says at the bottom that it's 1.7 miles to the top of the mountain. That's almost straight up, folks. It's almost straight up. I thought I was going to die by the time I got to the top of the mountain. But the funny part is, on the way down, we were walking down, and she was just ahead of me, and all of a sudden, I heard her scream and actually jump back at me. I thought, what the heck? And she moved out of the way, and on the ground was a huge black snake. I mean, this thing must have been six feet long. And so I had a plan to get it out of the way. I picked up a rock and just threw it up in the air, and I thought, well, if it thumps near the black snake, he'll slither off. That didn't work. Then I picked up a stick, and I thought, well, I'll just gently nudge him off the path. That didn't work. He turned around and started striking at the stick, and then there was an Indian gentleman from India that was coming down behind me. He says, I think you should just let him take his time and move off the path, and within about two or three minutes, he was gone. But snakes scare us, and of course, there's a serpent that comes into the picture here, and I want to read this passage to you because I think uh, I'll share with you what I think God's plan is, but I also want to share with you what the adversary's plan is. He's here to trip us up and destroy us. So Genesis 3, 1 through 6 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat fruit of all of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said unto the woman, Now here's the amazing thing. His tactics never change. It's the same all the time. You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. So she took the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband, and he ate. And from that point, that's original sin, the fall of man. It passed into the whole world. So we are all sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. We choose to sin. So from that point on, the Bible says that uh, we have examples in the Bible and through our daily lives of these two plans. I think God's plan can be encapsulated in two words, love and reconciliation. And Satan's plan can be encapsulated into two words, hate and destruction. So as far as love is concerned, uh, I shared a passage with the little children up here today John 3.16, one of my favorites. It's actually on the back side of your handout. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then as far as reconciliation is concerned, out of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19, if you wanted to just jot that down, 
it says that, that God was through the cross reconciling the world to himself. So his whole goal from the point of original sin, his plan is to reconcile the world so that we can enjoy an abundant life with him on a daily basis and look forward to our home in heaven. Satan, on the other hand, is uh, if you look at uh, John 8:44 and uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, we see that he is the father, father of lies. He was a murderer from the very beginning, and he is as a roaring lion seeking whom he can destroy. Now, if you don't think you're included there, you're wrong. He wants to destroy you. And so the plans have emerged, both vying for our uh, allegiance and affection. I think that we have, uh, in God's love letter, we have the issue of the Holy Spirit and his wise counsel. So if we give our hearts and lives to him, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us with wise counsel. We have the opportunity to pray. I often think about uh, trying to get an audience with the president, whether it would have been President Obama or President Trump or Clinton or George W. Bush or my favorite president probably of all my lifetime was Ronald Reagan. It, I couldn't have done it. It would have been very difficult to do. But it's an amazing thing to think that we can come into the throne room of God, into his presence, to a God that never slumbers or sleeps. He cares intimately about every detail of our lives, and we can pour our hearts out to him. I was up about 3 in the morning pouring my heart out to him about today. And I thought, you know, he never slumbers or sleeps. Then he also gives us his armor. Folks, we're in a battle with Satan. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And it's all around us. He gives us our armor for this battle. Now listen to this. He gives us the belt of truth. He gives us the breastplate of righteousness. I think of the old song, clothed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Okay, so he gives us a breastplate of righteousness. He says that our feet, in the old King James, it says they're shod with the preparation of the gospel. I think about horses. I have a friend who's a farrier, and he basically is always going out to shoe horses to protect their feet. And it says in the scripture that our feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel. We also have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. Thank God for the blood of Calvary so that we can be saved and have relationship with him. We have the sword of the spirit, which is the precious word of God. The devil's plan is to keep ourselves from giving ourselves to God. And once you do that, he's there to trip you up. He would like nothing better than to destroy you. He always uses the same devices. It's interesting to me that if you look at the account of Jesus in the New Testament when he went into the wilderness and he was tempted of the devil, or if you look at Eve's temptation, there are three things that he uses for every time he tries to trip us up. It's the lust of the eyes. You look at something and say, wow, look at that. It's the lust of the flesh. That looks good. I think I need that. She looked at the tree and said it was lovely to behold. She said, wow, that would make some good fruit. And then he says, it will make you like God. You will not die. You will be like God. Does that sound good to you? Would you like to be more like God? Wouldn't we all? Except for the fact that God had commanded them not to eat of that tree. So then when she looked at it, it says the pride of life would be, so that's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. She just says, wow, if I take a bite of this, I'm going to be like God. Maybe he was wrong. She took a bite. And saw the ramifications of it. And it was disastrous, not only for her and Adam, who were banished from the garden, 
but it's disastrous for us who live in the wake of that sin. So I just think that's interesting that you look at those three things. Okay, so look at the handout that I gave you. It tells us what the gospel is on one side. It says that the gospel is, this comes out of um, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and wherein you stand. We can stand firm in this gospel. By which you are saved. That's amazing. I mean, so what does it take to save you? The gospel? Well, let's see. If you hold fast to that which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. How Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. In God's plan, when he found that Adam and Eve had sinned and he banished them from the garden, he had to have an alternative plan. I think because of the command and free will, he knew before the foundation of the world that we would fall in sin. And I know it doesn't take a very deep look in the mirror to find out that I sin routinely. I don't want to sin. The Apostle Paul says the things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. So I'm thinking if he wrote 13 books in the New Testament and he can say that, I can be honest enough to fess up to God and say we're sinners. So Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried. The Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. It used to say he descended into hell. Took captivity captive. And that he was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel is clearly the base for our salvation. Jesus died for our sins. I heard a a preacher on the radio this past week uh, talk in light of the, the death for our sins. It says in 1 John 3, 8, if you want to make a little note there, that Christ went to the cross that he might destroy the work of the devil. And, of course, he was buried, and then he rose again the third day, defeating the final enemy, which was death. Okay, so basically... We have uh, in the plan in God's plan uh, ultimately is to love us and restore relationship. And in that process, if we give our hearts and life to him, he gives us two commandments. Somebody came to Jesus one time and he says, Master, what's the great commandment of the law? Tell us just what the great one is. And Jesus says, you tell me. And he says to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And he says, you've said right. He says, and the second is likened to it. To love our neighbor as ourselves. So there is a twofold uh, plan for him. And then in John 3 16, uh, there's a wonderful little illustration here of how to share our faith. It's, it's interesting. If you turn the sheet over, we'll just look briefly at that for a few minutes. And I'm thinking, uh, if you can memorize one verse of Scripture, this would be the verse of Scripture. I can remember the first time I learned it, I was probably in kindergarten. I learned the song, Jesus Loves Me, probably in kindergarten too. Um, or Vacation Bible School, probably is a better way to put it. It says in uh, John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world, part of his plan, by the way, sending his Son into the world. Christ was obedient to the plan. Even in Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup, talking about taking the sin of the whole world on his body, through the work of the cross, his passion. He says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, through him, 
the world might be saved. Come to relationship with him. Have abundant life. It doesn't mean that every day is going to be perfect for us, but it does mean that we will have the Savior walking through us, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He can give us abundant joy in this world. So then if we look at that, it says, For God so loved the world, and he loves the world, John three sixteen. Uh, there's another passage in 1 John two fifteen and 17 where Jesus says, Love not the world or the things of the world. Don't love the world or the things of the world. And I'm thinking, well, what's the, di- what's the deal here? He tells us to love the world and then not love the world. I think when he says, for God so loved the world, he's talking about this mass of humanity, the six billion people that live on the face of the gold, he, the globe. He's talking about your neighbors and your friends, your coworkers, your children, your grandchildren, your husbands and wives. He says, he, for he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the world that he's saying not to love is the world system. And guess what? Satan wants to trip us up by getting us to love the world system. Bigger houses, better jobs, more money in the bank, all of the things that the world says you need in order to have retirement and an abundant and joyful life, you don't really need those things. God is not telling us that we shouldn't have a retirement plan and that we shouldn't plan for the future. That would be foolish not to do that. But at the same time, he's saying if we place our priority on that, there is something drastically wrong. We need to love people, and we need to look for opportunities to build relationships. I've had the opportunity over my life to lead four or five people to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and every one of those conversions was through a long-term relationship. I built relationships over years with those people in order to let them know that I love them. There's an old adage that says, people don't know how much you care until they know, or don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that's really true. We need to build these same relationships and love people. That he gave his only begotten son. You know, it's interesting in Philippians 2.8, it says, uh, he, uh, Christ took on himself no reputation and humbled himself and became obedient, even to death, death on the cross, to save us, shedding his precious blood for us. He gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is belief? I think belief goes farther than just a head knowledge. It goes to a heart knowledge. We have to believe in our heart. He loved me enough that if I had been the only one in the world, he would have died and shed his blood on that cross to save me from my sins. And believe me, that is great news. That we should not die but have everlasting life. You know, it's interesting because I think that if I look at John 10.1, it says there is a thief who comes to destroy. Jesus came to bring abundant life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In Revelations 21.4, it talks about how all of the former things in this world will pass away. I thank God that my precious mom at uh, 97, passed away on the 31st of May, is in heaven. She knows what it's like to know that there are no more tears, no more weeping, no more gnashing of teeth, any of those things. All of the heartache in this world is gone for her, and I'm thankful that I'll see her again one day. That's an amazing thing. I think that uh, I wanted to read a little passage in here out of a book that was written by Mark Jones. My accountability partner actually gave me this book. And um, he's going through a seminary course right now, and I thought, well, this would be a good book for me to read a little excerpt from. But it uh, talks a little bit about heaven and hell. You know, heaven is a wonderful place. We spend most of our time thinking about it, but I just want to read what Mark says about hell in here. 
It says, Christ spoke on hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He did not merely talk about hell. Rather, he described hell um, concretely in, John, in uh, Matthew 10:28. For example, consider the language which he ends, and he describes hell as an unquenchable fire. He says that it's a fiery furnace. In its presence, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He confronts us with a lake of fire, the eternal fire, outer darkness, blackness and darkness forever, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is eternal and is forever. And you know what? In life for us, there are two outcomes. We can either give ourselves to Jesus Christ and enjoy him forever. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? To enjoy God forever, to know God and enjoy him forever. But we live in a dark world. People are asking questions. They don't know the answers to them, but Jesus is the answer. And without him, without faith in Jesus Christ, that's where they're going to wind up, folks. That's where they will wind up. So he's given us a great opportunity and a wonderful mission to share our love and faith in him. It's not rocket scientists. At 12 years old, Jesus was in the temple. He was uh, separated from his parents, and when they got him, they said, Son, where were you? He says, Don't you know I must be about my father's business? And so he was in the temple sharing with the doctors and lawyers the work of God. So we live in a culture that is uh, confused. We live in a lost world. It's desperately looking for answers, and we hold the keys uh, to this. Okay, I'd like to close with a final hymn, and it just tells us uh, what our job is. Our job, uh, this particular hymn was written by one of my favorite hymn writers, Fanny Crosby. It's called Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. And we can take that simple verse of John 3.16 and break it out like an outline and share with our family and friends, our coworkers, our loved ones, that God has a wonderful plan for their life. You know, Jeremiah 29.11 says God has a wonderful plan for our lives. And so many people have no idea what it is because the devil has masked it and says, you need this, look at this, it looks good. And you look at it and you say, I want that. And it will make me a better person. It won't. It'll just lead to more heartache and so forth. So I think if we're able to share the gospel in a wonderful way and build these relationships with people, it will be something where we can help in the process of God's plan to rescue the perishing, make a relationship with him, and we can enjoy heaven with them forever and ever. I love that song. It says, rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for their labor the Lord will provide. You know what? We can't do this on our own, folks. There is no way, unless Jesus is in the mix, we will fall flat on our face every single time. But he will provide the strength. Uh, this week I was listening to one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers on the radio. His name is Alistair Begg. And he made a comment at the close of his message. He says, go into all your world with the kingdom power unfurled. Because no other name than Jesus has the power to save. I hope you believe it. I hope you'll practice it through the coming week. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time of corporate worship when we can come into your presence. And thank you for your finished work on Calvary. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you that we're your children. Thank you that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that we're joint heirs with you, Lord. Help us to be concerned with the world around us and to realize that our neighbors, our families, our friends, our coworkers 
desperately need you. Equip us to be emissaries of your grace through the coming week. We'll give you the praise and glory for it. In Christ's holy name we ask it. Amen. Have a great week.